This episode of CBO Speaks is brought to you by Kaufman Hall. Learn about their strategic and financial consulting services and Axiom planning software by visiting kaufmanhall.com forward slash higher education. Welcome to CBO Speaks, a podcast from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO John Walda, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is for you to gain greater insight into the challenges and rewards of the Chief Business Officer role. Find out more from today's episode at www.nakubo.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to CBO Speaks. Thanks so much for joining us. My name is Megan Strand, your host, and I am thrilled to be joined today by Brett Sweet, who is Vice Chancellor for Finance and Chief Financial Officer at Vanderbilt University. Welcome, Brett. Thank you, Megan. Appreciate uh, being able to join you today. You're a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, and you spent five years as a nuclear submarine officer in the U.S. Navy and served as a special project officer with the National Security Agency. How do you get from there to higher ed? I'm so fascinated. (laughs) A very circuitous path. Uh, (laughs) I I call myself the accidental CFO sometimes. Uh, I love that. I, uh, I did go to the Naval Academy. Uh, went to West Point uh, one year as an exchange student. Wow! Uh, oh, they do, they do that. They do that. Yes. yes. Oh, that's cool. Uh, colloquial terms, we might have referred to it as a prisoner of war of sorts, being sent to West Point. But we we loved it nonetheless. <laughs> no, no. Truthfully, it was one of the best experiences of my life. So, um, have experience at both of those service academies, and then I was fortunate enough to work at the NSA for a little while. Um, uh, I was a math major, so I did some uh, code sort of geeky coding work there, uh, uh, encryption work, uh, before I went off to submarine school and worked on a submarine, as you talked about, for five years. So I was doing that. uh, Greatest job in the world. Um, Would do it for the rest of my life were it not for uh, being away at sea for months at a time and family. So once children came along, uh, my wife and I decided that that wasn't the the life for our family, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So um, didn't know what I was going to do. Went back to business school. Still didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, worked at the Boston Consulting Group for a while, and uh, by chance started working in healthcare and higher ed, and ended up uh, going to a medical school uh, out of the consulting firm after a few years. So sort of had this long circuitous route to higher education, starting on a you know professional school side, then moving into a, a Research One University, and now here at Vanderbilt. So uh, not the not maybe the typical route to being a CFO. Not at all. Well, that's fascinating. So you have a military background as well as some time in in corporate America. So tell me how the skills from each of those industries, if you will, have helped you as a CBO. Sure, sure. I will tell you. Um, by way of introduction, I am not a CPA, which also sometimes a bit unusual for mm-hmm. folks in the finance role. I did not study finance as an undergraduate. I studied mathematics and nuclear engineering. Don't have a CPA, didn't study accounting per se, but have learned over the years kind of it's it's really like learning a foreign language. It's it's uh, what we, uh, you know, it's the language we speak within the finance world. Um, mm-hmm. In direct response to your question about, you know, how those lessons from military life and then uh, in the corporate world, translate into higher education and sort of supporting the faculty and staff and students here from a financial perspective. They actually are far more applicable than people might think. I think one of the hmm. one of the challenges within higher ed sometimes, and, and those of us who have medical centers or are dealing with healthcare as well, is we have tended to be over the years, I think, a bit incestuous. There's this view of 
you know, if someone didn't grow up in higher ed or they, they didn't do um, the specific role at another university, maybe they don't have anything to contribute here. I'll give you an example. Maybe you're searching for a new head of procurement or a new head of HR or IT, and you might, you know, we've all sat through the search committee meetings where someone says, this candidate is amazing. We love them. There was great chemistry, but they haven't worked at a university. They're coming from the corporate mm-hmm. side and they're going to hit the third rail. I think we have to be careful when those conversations occur to be a little bit more open-minded um, because those folks have a lot to contribute. You get a sort of a diversity of thought and opinion and frankly, experiences. And I think that's what folks coming from sort of maybe the more corporate side coming into higher ed, um, um, you know, we have to be more open-minded to what they can provide in terms of different perspectives. You asked also about, you know, military background. I think that lends itself to sort of a service mentality. And all of us in higher ed who are on the staff side, I mean, our purpose in life is to serve and support the students and the faculty. I mean, I, I sometimes have to remind people and, we, and remind myself even, you know, it, it's it's human nature. You get, you get bogged down in the day-to-day of doing what you do, say, in the finance or the administrative world. And you have to remind yourself, you know, sometimes, hey, we are a school. You know, our purpose in life is research and discovery and education. And I often tell our staff, um, you know, on your worst of days, put your stuff down, turn off your computer, go walk around campus for a few minutes. And a 10-minute walk around campus is the the surest cure for, you know, the doldrums of whatever you might be working on because it's a nice reminder of, of what we're doing and, and why we're doing it here. So I think that military background lends itself particularly well on the service aspect. Can you think back when you to when you first entered higher ed as a professional? Was there anything you wish that you knew but you didn't when you were just starting out? And this kind of dovetails with what you were just saying um, in terms of maybe a cautionary tale when you're hiring people who don't have that university background. Are there things that you think you can do to help them get up to speed quicker that they need to know? Or is it really just uh, time and in the job? Uh, well, it's a little of both. I and it, your first question, are there things I wish I had known? So many things. Uh, primary among those are the ones that sometimes get people who come from the outside in, so to speak, into higher ed, um, that have them hit the third rail or, or flame out quickly. And it's a lack of appreciation, not a lack of ability to understand, but a lack of appreciation for the irrationality, so to speak, of what we do sometimes. We're, we, are in a, we are in a messy business. And I always tell people, we have to live in two worlds. Uh, one of my mentors early on, when I was having a tough time, she sat me down and said, look, you got to be a chameleon. You, know, you got to go back and forth from, we got to run the leanest, meanest administrative operation in the world because you know the challenges of, of financing of higher education. But at the same time, we have to have the ultimate flexibility for our faculty to do what they need to do, and that's that's you have to you have to be willing to have some cognitive dissonance of of hold two thoughts simultaneously that are in direct contradiction to each other. And I wish someone had explained that to me earlier on. Of you know, you think you're coming to an institution where we hire the smartest people in the world, which we do, but at the same time, from an operational perspective, we're almost like an artistic agency. You know, we're in the creation and discovery business and that is fundamentally fundamentally a messy business um, and so again we got to live in these two worlds of running the shop behind the scenes as much like a corporate enterprise which is you know corporate's a bad word in our world but you have to run it like a corporate enterprise almost in a, in a non-subversive way run it behind the scenes like the best corporation in the world but in a way that 
no one ever senses or feels impinges on their ability to do what they need to do in the classroom or the lab. And as an administrator, you have to be willing to accept that things aren't always going to be precise and perfect. We Again, we have a messiness in our business that I think is unlike what you would find anywhere in corporate America. And it's part and parcel to the magic of what happens in universities. I've heard it described, but not exactly how you've just described it. So um, great idea. Let's give every new CBO kind of that that education and that training. They should all listen to this podcast. They, should, yes. they all need to know they're joining a crazy group of people in a wonderful way. <laughs> we're, we're all sort of, universities are this crazy amalgamation of creative folks trying to, you know, discover things and educate the next generation of students and leaders. So you you have to be willing to deal with ambiguity coming into mm-hmm. an institution. That's one of the other pieces of advice I give new people as well. If you want everything to be, you know, perfection and you want to have 100% of the information before you make a decision, this is probably not the best place for you. <laughs> no control freaks allowed. Exactly. Well, let's switch gears just a little bit and talk about your current role. What, Brett, is most exciting about your job today at Vanderbilt? I think the the finance and administrative leadership roles at institutions have changed over the years. Um, I think many, many years ago, it was much more budgetarily focused, accounting, administer the parking operation, the payroll. And that's morphed over the years where that's sort of the minimum blocking and tackling that's required. But in addition, there's an expectation that these leaders also have a lot more outreach to the faculty, um, to board members, to alumni, hopefully potential donors, uh, and to investors and ratings agencies. So there's a lot more outward focus than I feel like there was 15 years ago when I first started uh, in this industry. Um, And I think that actually makes it very exciting, you know, getting tapped to do things like fundraising, teaching in the classroom, interacting with alumni and donors to sort of um, translate the university message, dealing with folks in D.C. in this perpetual, you know, dialogue we have of trying to educate the public about what universities do and how we go about doing that. What are you doing now in your professional life that you never imagined you'd be doing 10 or even 20 years ago? I'd tell you the thing that I didn't do 15 years ago when starting in the academy and didn't imagine doing at the time and things I do now that I really do enjoy are the the teaching aspect. You know, you get to a point in your career where you've built your team and you you're supporting them and you're continuing to roll up your sleeves and be sort of a player coach. But you then have the opportunity over time, once you've kind of figured out how the plumbing works within higher ed, to be able to do some of the education component, Mm -hmm. not from a direct professorial angle, but from giving lectures in business school classes or higher education administration classes. And that's particularly enjoyable. I mean, one of the, the most rewarding things is over the years to see some of those students in master's and EDD classes that you help teach in go on and get jobs at higher ed institutions or work at your institution. So Mm -hmm. that component is particularly fulfilling to see those students or even your staff who you've educated in and outside of the classroom go off to uh, wonderful careers, either at your institution or the other institution. Uh, The other part that I didn't imagine 15 years ago, and and frankly, I dreaded early on was the whole fundraising component. You know, I never, Mm -hmm. never envisioned enjoying, you know, some people have a gift for asking 
people for support for their organization. And early on, I think I viewed it as we are going out and asking for money. And what I've learned over the years is what we're really doing is just telling the story of the institution and finding people who want to engage at that level and are passionate about the same things. It really doesn't even come down to asking people for money per se. It's asking them to engage and support the institution. And that's been enjoyable over the years to see the level of passion and alumni and community members and how they come back to support their their institution in financial and non-financial ways, be it coming back and helping students find jobs, supporting you directly financially, or helping you get access to folks you need to deliver your message in, be it politically or, or from an investment world perspective. Brett, what would you say is the biggest challenge that faces all CBOs today? Like what's keeping you all up at night collectively? It's a balance. Hmm. <laughs> balance. And specifically what I mean is, and I don't mean precise balance, but a a sustainable balance between revenues and expense growth. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I know you all have spoken on some of these podcasts with others about Baumel's curse, and that is alive and well in the higher education industry. Um, just like artistic organizations, you know, we we have the constant struggle of uh, productivity increases in our world are very very different from what you would see in a manufacturing sense or even a Mm -hmm. service industry sense. Mm -hmm. It's really, really challenging to get economies of scale in a a professor-student translation of, you know, communication of knowledge and dissemination of thoughts around how do you make discoveries and have creative thinking. People espouse, you know, it's become fashionable over the past few years to suggest that uh, research universities or universities in general are going to, you know, be out of business because of online learning. And and I am a, a big proponent of, you know, we can flip the classroom, we can use technology to enhance the learning experience, but there is something magical that occurs in a small setting with a group of students or even one student and a professor that no one has figured out how to replicate with technology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As a result, we don't yield those economies of scale. Again, like you see in other industries and productivity enhancements are really, really difficult for us. Tie that to you you can't manage the costs as much as you might in a manufacturing context, context with the revenue pressures we're all under. You know, will future investment returns be the same as they have been for the past hundred years? Will the U.S. Uh, government continue to invest in research and development at the rate it has, or will we will we continue this downward trend? Will tax laws change that negatively impact us, negatively impact our donors' ability or willingness to support us? You kind of go down the row of every revenue source, and they're all under incredible pressure. And while mm-hmm. at the same time it's really difficult to manage that expense growth. So keeping it in balance is the biggest challenge for us. The other challenge t- tied to that that balance of revenue and expense growth is the constant and you know unending desire and demand for increasing uh, services and programs. And that's what we are. That's universities evolve and morph over the years. I will say we are not the best, all of us together uh, as an industry, in stopping doing things. We're really, mm-hmm. really good at starting up things. Yep. Uh, new programs, new centers, new institutes, you know, and, and you always have new faculty, new staff. You have new expenditures that go along with that. We are not as good as we could or should be at figuring out what to take off of our plates. And so that then leads to the expense challenge of, of adding staff and the, the constant refrain you hear in the public rhetoric is, you know, the administrative bloat at institutions. 
there's there's always two sides to that story. Some of it's related to regulation and uh, uh, compliance demands, but at the same time, honestly, we as an industry have not done as well as we again could or should in terms of managing what do we do that's new, balanced out with what do we stop doing, um, or can we do things in a more efficient way behind the scenes? Again, not in the lab, not in the classroom, but behind the scenes just keeping the trains running on time? Have we leveraged every piece of technology? Have we leveraged every piece of human capital to minimize the growth of that staff? Because people are dollars. We're all of us. You pull out the financial statements of any college or you know 3,000 plus colleges and universities in the U.S. with a four-year flavor, so to speak. Um, and we're all going to be between 60 and 70% people expense. So the people translate to dollars. And again, that that becomes our biggest challenge and just keeping it in balance over the long term. Is that a conversation you find yourself having often? What should we be stopping or what should we be rethinking? Is that like a personal philosophy that you've started asking around as you're having these hard conversations? Oh, constantly. constantly. <laughs> There's not a day that goes by that someone doesn't say we need to hire a new staff member. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and it's coming from a good place. They're, they're right. trying to implement an enhanced program, a new program, provide better services. So I, I rarely, if ever, you know, one out of a thousand times, do you see someone, the, the, the you know, perennial empire builder that people talk about, those are rarer than people might think in higher education. Most people pursue this path on the staff side with a sense of service. They could generally speaking, all make more money in the outside world. So they're they're taking a bit of what I call the mission discount to work in a higher education mm-hmm. institution because they want to serve and they, they like being around the faculty and students. They like the environment of a higher ed institution. So generally speaking, people are coming at it from a really good place, but they may not have had exposure to the bigger picture to understand the financial consequences of what they're asking for. So I often will push back on people and say, well, if you were the chancellor or you were the president and you're asking that person to provide X amount of funding for this wonderful new idea you have, and there are no new revenue sources, what would you suggest we stop doing? And that often makes Mm. people at least pause and think about or calibrate the ask in terms of what they're trying to do. One of the things I learned from a dean years ago is always pushing people on, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? I know you're asking for this, but at the end of the day, what are you trying to accomplish? Because I agree with what you're trying to accomplish. I may not necessarily agree with how you want to get there. Maybe we can work together to figure out a different way to get to the same endpoint that doesn't consume as many resources, or perhaps we can leverage something that exists within the university. I feel like that's one of our roles as institutional leaders as well as to be sort of connectors, traffic cops of helping connect people. Um, because the institution, we are, all of us, particularly large research universities, um, you know, we have a lot of schools, a lot of departments, a lot of centers and institutes. A lot of those people don't, they're so busy performing the magic they do in their lab and or in the classroom, they don't have the time to kind of put their head up and see, well, the, something similar or complementary is going on, maybe in a completely different school. You know, maybe I'm doing something in economics that the law school, there's a faculty member there that's doing something. And maybe that even ties into the neuroscience department and some research they're doing. I feel like part of our role as administrative leaders and faculty leaders within universities to help connect those folks um, to basically, you know, in, enhance the, the collaborative framework that already exists within universities. But sometimes we need to, we need to sort of catalyze that connective tissue 
Brett, you've, you've just named one, but can you think of other opportunities that are facing CBOs today? I mean, it's, it's, yes, there's a balancing act in the budget, but what, what is the glimmer of hope for you in terms of what you're, you're watching? What are the opportunities that you're most interested in today? It's really around training the next generation. I mean, there's hmm. been, I'd say for the past five to 10 years, and Nakuba's done a lot of great work sort of putting data behind this and analyzing this, there's been this talk of there's going to be a cliff of CBOs retire. Right. You know, all of the grand poobahs are going to retire and there's no <laughs> one behind them. The bench is light, not a lot of people on the bench. And it's interesting. I don't necessarily ascribe to that theory. I mean, the statistics hmm. are correct. There is a wave of retirements coming of people somewhere between, you know, say 55 and 70. And it, frankly, in academic and administrative leadership roles. But if you go back and you look at sort of the history of when there are peaks and troughs of stresses and strains for higher education, we are clearly in one of those eras right now with, you know, economic pressures and and, and public confidence pressures, confidence of folks in DC. And while it is, you know, painful and awful and we're all working through it, it's not the first time this has happened. You know, you mm-hmm. go back to the, I mean, obviously we all went through the, the 2008, 2009 time period. <laughs> I mean, you, you go back even further, you go back to, you know, the early seventies and you had a handful of the top schools today saying they might be out of business if, you know, the world doesn't change. And yeah, it's, it's almost like deja vu. If you go back and read some of the literature from the early 70s or even some, you know, the, the Carnegie and Ford Foundation's work from back then and which followed on from work they did coming out of the Great Depression. If you change the dates and the names, you would think it was now. They talk wow. about a dearth of administrative and academic leadership. There are all these financial pressures. We're going to go out of business. And you know what? The next generation always comes through. So I, I have a little more optimism <laughs> about the next generation um, and, and training those future CBOs, be they from within the academy or from without the academy, you know, coming from inside or outside. Um, I, I don't necessarily ascribe to the theory that everyone's going to retire and there's no one behind them. I think we do have some great new CBOs coming up through the ranks. And then we're, I think we're becoming more open-minded as an industry about bringing people in from, so to speak, the outside, you know, corporate America or other, other industries coming into higher ed. I think we've all learned lessons over the years of bringing in folks from industry who didn't survive, not so much because they, they weren't bad people, but they, we maybe didn't set them up for the greatest amount of success. So I think we've learned over the years how to onboard people who haven't grown up in higher ed and protect them from hitting the third rail. So because of those two aspects, bringing up the next generation and being better about onboarding people from the outside, um, I have a little bit more optimism about the future. Well, and that sort of leads into my next question. I want to talk a little bit about mentorship. And you mentioned this a couple of times, actually, throughout your remarks today. Talk a little bit about how professional mentors have helped you along your journey. Well, I'll tell you, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for a few of those over the years. I would have hit the third rail. I, mean, I, I probably did hit the third rail a couple of times and had someone uh, uh, help me. I, I'll tell you, early on, you know, coming from the outside, it, it is challenging coming from non-higher ed into higher ed, particularly in a leadership position, because you don't know, like I described, you know, the craziness, the wonderful craziness of our sure. world. Um, and early on, I had a few mentors that really just, you know, lessons uh, that were different from what I learned in the military or, or working with corporations. But, you know, I'll give you a handful of those, for example. You know, um, I had a dean early on who I was having a very difficult time. You know, the school is in financial distress and 
you, you know, it's almost, it's a, it affects your personal health. It just, it's very stressful. Um, you'll find young, inexperienced CFOs like I was 15 years ago. Um, you know, you kind of, you kind of take that all on personally of it's sure. your fault. It's your responsibility. And I had this Dean call me an elder, elder statesman Dean call me in his office one day. He said, you know, why are you putting the weight of the world on your shoulders? You know, it's not, it's not, this isn't all your problem to fix. You know, you, you need to help us fix it, but it's not all on you to fix it single-handedly. And, and that's very helpful to be reminded that, yeah, you may be responsible for a particular area. You might be in charge of the dining operation. You might be in charge of HR, IT, finance, but at the end of the day, it's not all, you know, you, you can leverage the, the collective wisdom and support of of the faculty of, mm-hmm. in some cases, you know, student leaders to help you solve problems. That, that was very um, impactful. Um, also mentors who would pull me aside after, after meetings. One of the leadership lessons you learn in the military is to, you know, uh, praise publicly and reprimand in private. Mm-hmm. You know, never, never, ever, never reprimand in a public manner. And in our world, in the higher ed world, you know, we're often called on to speak in front of students or faculty. Um, and there is, as I described to people, there's a caste system in the higher education world. Go back, you know, hundreds of years. That's how it kind of started. And that's how it remains. And that's not all bad. You want that to be, and when I say a caste system, you know, uh, there, there are faculty and there are staff supporting them and the students. Sure. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. The trick is you want that gap to be as narrow as possible. So they're mutually supportive of each other. and and early on, people coming from the outside will often come in and, and they'll use tone, intonation, they'll use words when speaking with students or faculty uh, that might imply, you know, you work for the university. And mm-hmm. yes, we are legally, we're an employer and we have employees, but we're, we're a collective of people coming together to, you know, make discoveries and teach students. And you really, early on, I had some mentors really help me pulled me aside after meetings and said, you know, you were talking about this economic thing. You're talking about how the budgets are going to be next year, but the words you, and I get what you're saying, but the words you're using could be interpreted this way. Mm-hmm. And that was really helpful for me to have, you Absolutely. know, the, I remember the president of the university would call me after a faculty meeting and say, you know, really loved how you talked about this. There was this one thing I wish you would, you know, here's another way you might think about saying it and not mm-hmm. in a mean-hearted, mean-spirited, or, or you know, a, a way to say, I'm upset about what you did, but it's just to give advice and coaching. And I've tried to do that over the years. And it's not, you don't have to do anything formal. It can be while you're walking back to the building. It can be an email. I prefer, you know, in person or by phone, but just those two-minute conversations to say, I really appreciate how you conveyed this to the department chairs. You might think about saying this in a slightly different manner because it could be misinterpreted. That Mm -hmm. advice early on helped me a lot and has sort of framed how I try to train people as they're speaking. A lot of what we do is trying to communicate what we're doing, either internally or externally. And that's hard. That's a, some people are born with that gift, but others develop (laughs) it over time. And it is definitely something that can be learned. Um, But I've, I've, I've learned you have to, you almost have to let people make those mistakes, and then you talk to them about it privately, like I say, and then you tell them, you know, you need to know when to intervene. Sometimes that is necessary, but most of the time (laughs) you can kind of let them learn along the way and give them advice similar to the advice I received. So I try to sort of mirror a lot of that behavior I learned early on from some great deans and presidents and department chairs. 
Anything else that you do to nurture the next generation of CBOs, if you will? I'll tell you something I've been doing in the past 10 years that I didn't do in the first five years. Um, and I think it's a it's a career trajectory thing, and I, I wish I had done it earlier. Um, it's when you're developing staff, which we've, we all do, we all want to develop our team to the best extent possible. Early on, I used to almost, and it's a selfish thing, I'll admit, you almost took it as an offense when someone moved to another school and they got a promotion. You know, they get mm-hmm. promoted and they go to another school. And then you realize over time, you learn, wow, this is actually a great compliment to our institution. It's a great compliment to, you know, uh, our team. Um, and oh, by the way, this person, now they're going to have a more fulfilling job. They're, you know, they've moved on presumably to a much better uh, a role, a bigger role. Um, and we are, we are like a professional services firm, right? We have a pyramid of sorts and we're not typically, we're not a growth industry. We're not going to add new geographies or new product lines per se in any material way. Some universities, yes, are expanding the student body, but by and large, we're not, if you look at the demographics of who's, you know, the pipeline into higher education from a student perspective, we're not a super growth industry, which creates a challenge in terms of, uh, if you think of it like a service firm where you have, you know, partners and managers, we don't have a lot of room unless people leave the end of the pipeline. So this is actually, when people go to other schools, you you learn that's actually a great opportunity. Again, in a selfish way, it actually helps you. It helps your school when you need outreach to, you know, we're, we're incredibly co- collaborative. I always tell people we're the weirdest industry in the world because we compete viciously for students and faculty all the time, right? But, and grants and for fundraising, you know, we're very competitive in that regard. But when it comes to how we run the business, we're an open book. We share everything. You know, we, mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. with colleagues, it's one of the wonderful things I love about this industry. I can call a colleague at another school and say, here's a problem I have. I think you might've dealt with this a few years ago or send an email to 10 colleagues and say, we're trying to figure out how to go about this. Does anyone have any ideas? Um, when you have these folks move from your institution to another institution, you automatically have a, a great connection to that school. And so it's actually been fun to watch these people sort of move on to other schools. So again, first few years, I, I, I naively thought, oh, we've done something wrong. They're leaving us. I've learned over the years, it's a wonderful thing for them to go to these jobs. And it actually, again, in a somewhat selfish way, helps our institution, of, mm-hmm. helps our brand, helps our, our us get access to information and, you know, peer knowledge, experience when we need it. You have a friend over at that school. Um, so that's been a, one of the lessons I've learned over the years. In terms of mentorship, I think we all have to do a better job of developing our own. We all say, well, the next generation is not ready. Um but we have a responsibility to sort of develop them. So we've done a couple things here that similar to some other schools where we have an internal leadership academy where that we identify up and coming, you know, the people who faculty and staff where we say this could be the next department chair. This could be the next director of some administrative unit. And uh, we expose them to a lot of things through a year of uh, a leadership academy. We have something we call the business of VU where we um, uh, expose a broad swath of current students, faculty, staff, to uh, pretty much every administrative area of the university. And we say, aside from what someone gets paid, we will tell you anything. You want to know how much the flowers in the lobby cost? We'll tell you. You know, uh, Beyond personal information, we're, we're, we will open it all up to you. And you may not agree with some decisions, but we're going to have a hearty debate about it. And that has been incredibly powerful 
hmm. and impactful in developing the next generation. It frankly helped us identify, as we all have, of the blind spot, you know, two or three layers down the organization. You don't necessarily have visibility into who some of these great new up-and-coming talents are. Those leadership academies, those uh, exposure sort of sessions you do uh, around how the university works help you identify a lot of that untapped talent. Brett, thank you so, so much for your time today and for sharing just a few of your insights with us. What a really fascinating journey and just a really interesting perspective. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. You can find out more about Brett and today's episode by visiting the distance learning section of nakubo.org. And make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks in iTunes so that you'll get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Brett and myself, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us for this episode of CBO Speaks. This episode of CBO Speaks is brought to you by Kaufman Hall. Learn about their strategic and financial consulting services and Axiom planning software by visiting kaufmanhall.com forward slash higher education.